This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. We'll just break into this story. The story's familiar enough to most of you anyway. It's Paul on the ship going as a prisoner to Rome. They encounter a great storm. Verse 21, But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God who whom I belong, whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, man, for I believe God that it will be just as as it was told me. However, we must be run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. They took soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms. Then they took on a little further, and they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Amen. Paul was undoubtedly a giant of the New Testament. Spiritually, uh, he seemed to be head and shoulders above all others. He was a tremendous man of faith and power, a lover of God, a revealer of truth, a pillar, uh, probably the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived, a mighty servant of God. And yet, he was no stranger to hardship. When he was writing to young Timothy, young pastor, he said, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That would not be a very popular message today, would it? Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Times he even despaired of his very life. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if I may read from there, verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, 
that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also being helping together in prayer for us, that many thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And then in chapter uh, 4, I believe it is, chapter 4, yes, just a couple of verses here, verses, verses 8 to 10. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And then chapter 11. Well, let me read in verse 22. Uh, this, unfortunately, was the Apostle Paul having to, uh, not that he wanted to, but uh, the Corinthian church that he had spent some time with uh, and then had left them to go and evangelize. Then he wanted to go back again. Uh, they were wanting uh, special letters of commendation. And that kind of upset him, really, because he said, you are my letters written in my heart. So then he's uh, trying to, in a way, not that he wants to, but in a way he's trying to say, well, look, uh, I've got the marks of an apostle on me. Listen to this. He said, are they Hebrews? This was those who had come into the church and were trying to separate them from Paul. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak of a fool. Now he says, I feel a bit foolish telling you, I have to tell you this. I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So what a litany of things that this tremendous man of God had gone through. However, in spite of all of that, he was still able to declare victory in spite of it all. Listen to what he says, Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What was Paul's secret? How could he be so confident when all the odds 
were stacked against him so many times, especially in the story that we began with, how could he be so confident that he was going to come through these things? What was his secret? Well, he dropped four anchors. Verse 29, the crew dropped four anchors. Well, Paul had four anchors, but they weren't those literal iron anchors. They were spiritual anchors that he was able to drop in the midst of the storm that held him steady in spite of it. Verse 23 and 24 and 25, actually we read what those four anchors were. These were four things that he could absolutely count on. Four things that they were sure in his life. First of all, he was absolutely sure of his confession. I believe God, he said in verse 25. Now, it's easy when the sun is shining and the sea is calm and there's no storms and your health is good and you've a little bit of money in the bank and all is well at home with the marriage, with the children, with the grandchildren. It's easy then to say, I believe God. But he wasn't saying this in a vacuum. He wasn't even saying it when times were good. He was saying it the worst possible time when it even looked as if all of their lives were going to be lost. He still said, I believe God. That's when it really counts, isn't it? I mean, the man on the street could say, I believe God when everything's okay. But when things are not okay, when things are going against you, when the odds are stacked against you, he still managed to say, I believe God. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful who promised. Paul writing to Timothy said, I know in whom I have believed. See how personally made that I know in whom I have believed. Irregardless of anybody else, what they believe, I know in whom I have believed. See, this was his anchor. Now, all of us will put our trust in something or someone. Sometimes our faith is in our faith and our hope is in our hope. But Paul says, I trust him. I believe God. I'm not even believing in my own faith. I'm believing in him. That's what he's saying. I believe God. Job said, though God would slay me, yet I will trust him. I shall then come forth as gold. Paul looked at the big picture. He trusted God with his whole life. He would not allow the troubles and the problems of today influence tomorrow. And that's a good thing. And it's a tough thing, isn't it? Because all of us has a tendency to let the troubles and the problems of the day influence our tomorrows before we even get there, don't we? But not Paul. He looked at the big picture. He kept reaching towards the prize that was set before him so that nothing today would stop him going forward in Christ tomorrow. That's the way that this man lived. And what a challenge that is. I mean, even Jesus, the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He saw the big picture. 
He looked beyond what was happening right now. Think of what Jesus was going through on the cross and all of that and the, and the hatred and the animosity against him and they spat upon, they plucked his beard, they crucified him and he looked beyond all of that for the joy that was set before him, for the reward that he was going to receive. His inheritance, which is us, we mentioned that this morning. One person with the belief is better than a hundred who have only an interest. If you've got a belief, a deep belief, an assurance in your heart, I believe God. I've trusted him. I have proven him. I know him. This is what Paul's saying. A.W. Tozer said, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And isn't that the truth? What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Paul said, I believe God. That was bottom, that was basic, that was the foundation of everything he did. His belief in God, his confession. He was sure of his connection. Verse 23, to whom I belong. He had a connection to Christ, the Christ who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. His connection to God was the strength of his confession of God. I'll say that again. His connection to God was the strength of his confession of God of God. One was the natural outflow of the other. His walk was the strength of his talk. If you take a car aerial or your television aerial on your roof, if the connection is bad, the signal will be weak and you'll get a fuzzy picture and a broken up sound. The other night, the little TV we have in our kitchen, I went in and I pressed it on because Sally was watching something else and the football was coming on. So there was nothing else but to go into the kitchen. So I pressed it on, no sound. And I thought, my wife has been fitted. No, I didn't. Uh, uh, and I kept pressing and pressing. I went into the menu and I did everything. Nothing would work. And then I thought, do you know what? I wonder, is it that wee wire at the back? So I give the wee wire, I don't know what wire it was anyway. I'm not that technical. I give it a bit of a swizzle. And lo and behold, the thing come on loud and nearly blew me out of the kitchen. I had the thing away up. And, uh, but it was just a loose connection. It was a bad connection. And we need our connection right. We really need a good connection. A poor connection is a poor confession. If our connection's not good, then our connection, our confession will not be good either. Paul was sure of his connection, to whom I belong. Belonging is such a fundamental human need. As human beings, we need the connection of others. We really do. And that's why we join societies, fraternities, clubs, chapters, whatever. The bikers all get together. Guys who like football all chat about it. There's a connection there. 
And we need connections, don't we? The Bible says that God sets the solitary in families. Even way back in Genesis, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. All the animal kingdom was not enough. None of it would satisfy a man. God had to make a woman. So we need a connection. We need fellowship. As Christians, you find that the church is probably God's main way of connecting his people. Too many Christians have no idea what church really is about. It's God's way of connecting his body on earth so that we interact, so that we're all a part and parts of his body, all connecting and interacting, and that's what makes church good. If you think church is just coming along for just for an hour and listen to the preacher and sing a few songs and go out and forget about it next week, you have entirely missed what church is all about. And it's very, very hard. It's connecting with each other. And you can sit on the side and not connect if you wish, but you're missing what church is about. It's connecting. It's fellowshipping. It's being part of the body. That's what it's about. We belong to God. Now, Christ is the head, and the head is in heaven. We're the body, and we're on earth. And if we want to be connected to the head, then we better be an active part of the body to connect to the head. And once we do that, then church becomes different. But it's God's probably main way of making sure that we are connected to him and connected to each other. Now, there's those who say, well, I, I really don't need church and I, I can just follow God on my own. And uh, Well, I don't even see that in the New Testament whatsoever unless somebody's health is impaired or whatever, they're homebound and they can't. But other than that, I don't see that at all. I see that there's a purpose in us coming together and connecting and fellowshipping and getting to know. That's one of the reasons why we have home groups. Some of you don't bother to go. You just, ah, ah, I never bother them home groups. You're missing the connection. You really are missing the connection. We pray for each other. We know each other. We know each other better now than we've ever known each other. If any one of us is in trouble, we can pray, we can talk, we can share. It's great. It's good. It's a connection. It's what the church should do, connect. He was sure of his connection. He was sure of his commitment. His commitment to Christ. To whom I belong and whom I serve. Serving God is a commitment. It has to be. Commitment sustains you through the tough times. If you're not committed to anything, you'll not last through the tough times. That's what gets you through, being committed. There's a massive difference between commitment and convenience. Now, we like convenience, don't we? All of us, we like convenience. We like convenient foods. We like electronic banking because that's convenient. We like a convenient parking space. We like convenient everything. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But the trouble is that mindset of convenience slips into our service for the kingdom. And let me tell you something. <laughs> service in the kingdom is sometimes the most inconvenient thing possible. 
Many times it's the most inconvenient thing imaginable. But if you're committed, you do it nevertheless. All of these people who continually lead us in worship, all of these men and women who work behind the scenes doing everything to make this possible on a Sunday, it ain't convenient. They've got to give up their Saturday afternoons again and again and again. See, a lovely, bright, sunny Saturday afternoon. You think they wouldn't want to go to Newcastle for an ice cream and mods? Eh? But they're here practicing so that when we come in on Sunday, there's somebody. And if they didn't do that, what would we have on Sunday? An absolute shambles. But they're committed. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient, they're committed to doing it. Our time is precious. Our spare time is even more precious. We desperately try to guard it. But the thing is, if God's kingdom requires it, and if it's not convenient, we still do it anyway. Commitment always finds a way. It takes the time. It rearranges the schedule. It gets things done in spite of how inconvenient it may be. Listen, this was the most inconvenient moment in Paul's life. He was on a ship in a storm about to go down. It says in the previous verse that we didn't read, and when many days and nights without sun or stars appeared. Somebody shut that window there. There's all kinds of cackling going on outside there. It's this one here, Sam. Yeah. And so there was a period when they didn't know night from day. That's how bad the storm was for days on end. And when all hope that we should be saved was taken away, <laughs> things was really, really bad. How inconvenient is that? And he was a prisoner to boot. But yet he said, the God to whom I belong and the God whom I serve, you see, Billy Graham, uh, a number of years ago, a lot of number of years ago, uh, he published a letter from a young communist. There was a time in Americans' history when, uh, uh, when they feared a takeover by infiltrators of communism. And everybody, including film stars and all the rest of it, were <laughs> suspected of all kinds of communistic acts and all the rest of it. So it was a very difficult time if you were a communist. And this is a letter uh, by a young communist who broke off his relationship with his girl because obviously she wasn't going the way he was going. And listen to what he said. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs in every other way, made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We're described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated. By the way, you could say this about the communists then. You could say this about the jihadists today. It's the same principle. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. 
We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal slaves into into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard, our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we're adequately compensated by the thought that each of us, in a small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There's one thing in which I am in debt earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread and my meat. I work at it in the daytime. I dream of it at night. It holds me, its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude towards it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals and of necessary I'm ready to go before a firing squad. That, my friend, is total commitment, isn't it? And there's people today who live that way. They're either committed or they're not committed. There's no half measures. Here's the opposite of that. Chuck Swindle, who's a very humorous preacher, He said one morning in his church, he preached a a morning sermon that had real appeal in it for us to get serious about this matter of committing ourselves to the ministry of this church. That was his church. And I said to the congregation that making a vow to God is a serious thing, and we do not play games when it comes to giving God a promise. Now, unknown to most of the people in the congregation, there's a fellow in our church who had boat fever. In other words, he liked playing about in boats. By the way, I heard about a pastor in Australia, and he loved playing about in boats, but he felt guilty about it. So you know what he called it? He called it visitation. So when somebody rang up looking for him, his wife says he's out on visitation. (laughs) Somebody's will get that tomorrow morning. So, unknown to most of the people in the congregation, there's a fellow in our church who had boat fever. He had been down to the ocean. He had picked out the boat he felt God wanted him to have. His wife didn't have the same leading, but he felt he had God's mind in it. And all through the morning message, he was really wrestling with what he should do with this matter of making a vow and letting go of the things that really get a hold onto him. And he squirmed a little. And after the message was finished, and I talked about giving over possessions over to God. He came to me after the service and he said, you know, I really believe that I know what God is saying now. And I was all ready for him to say that God had made it clear to him that in this case, he shouldn't get the boat. Do you know what he said? He said, it's clear to me now that I should get the boat and maybe start a Sunday school class on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was committed to you. <laughs> I think he was playing at convenience. Paul says, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What you commit to him, he keeps. Paul committed himself to God and he stayed in the boat. 
Now those experienced sailors knew that they were in big trouble. And they knew the only way, as far as they were concerned, was to get onto that lifeboat and get off that boat fast. And Paul said, the centurion, unless these stay in the boat, will perish. So the centurions cut the ropes and they all had to stay in the boat. Paul was committed to staying on board that boat because God told him that they were going to make it, even though the boat would be lost, but every one of them would make it back to shore. Now, Peter was committed to get out of the boat to walk to Jesus. But sometimes it's harder to commit to staying in a boat when it's sinking than getting out of the boat. And Paul was committed to staying in that boat even though he knew that eventually it would smash to pieces and sink. But he was committed to staying on it. Why? Because he trusted God. He was committed. He was absolutely committed to God. So he was sure of his commitment to God. He's sure of his confession. He was sure of his connection. But he was also sure of Christ's commitment to him. Because the Lord had given him a commitment. If he stayed on the boat, and if they all stayed in the boat, verse 24, God will give you all that seal with you. God had committed to him 275 souls. He was 276. That's a lot of people, isn't it? I wonder who God has committed to you to pray for, to reach out to, to help, to influence. And God had committed 275 souls to this man. He must have had big confidence in Paul. So God commits to us people, responsibilities, a calling. He commits it to us. Yes, we need to be committed to him, but God commits stuff to us. Sometimes we're the intercessors. Sometimes we're the gap standers. Sometimes we're the rope holders. Remember in Acts how that the Apostle Paul, how that he was let down in a basket by disciples holding the rope so that he could escape. I've got a message in that years ago. I preached about those holding the rope. And even though their backs were breaking and their arms were aching, they still had to hold that rope until Paul reached the ground and escaped. I wonder, are you holding the rope for somebody? Who's in your basket tonight that you're holding the rope for? In prayer, in intercession. Maybe the Lord has committed that soul to you. Not that you're ultimately responsible for their soul, but he's committed that soul to you to pray for, to hold on to, to keep holding that rope. Psalm 27 and 10 when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take 
care of me. You see, he's committed to you. God is absolutely committed to you. And the psalmist knew that. Isaiah 49, 14, 16. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have not compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, I know that was written for Israel. And it's absolutely true for Israel because he hasn't forgotten Israel. But it's for us too. Our names are inscribed in the palms of his hands, as it were. And he's committed to us tonight. Fully, absolutely committed to us. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. When God gives you a gift or a calling, he doesn't take it back. You can mess it up, or you can use it for his glory, but he doesn't call it back. He makes you responsible for it, makes you a steward of it. I was reading an article the other day, and they are saying that's why many times some people who has been mightily used of the Lord, tremendously gifted prophetically and healing in every way, and yet their lives ended up in mess. And even in the mess, for a time, God still used them because of that gift that was in them. He didn't call it back, but they messed up. Jeremiah 31 and 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with everlasting love. Huh. Paul has four anchors. In the midst of that storm in that ship, it kept him safe and sound. Not only did it save him, but every crew member on board was saved. And if you read the end of the story, even though the ship was battered, but all of them, even in bits of driftwood, all of them, without exception, made it back to land. Not a hair of their head was lost, as he said. Because somebody was committed to God, and God was committed to him. So what's your commitment tonight? Hmm? God's committed to you. Are we committed to him? Has God put someone or something into our hands and we're committed to it? We're going to see it through. Amen? No matter what, we are going to see it through to the end because we're committed to do it. And we'll need all the grace that God can give us. And we'll need all the strength and the courage that God can give us. But we are going, that's our determination is, we're going to see it through because we're committed to do it. Amen? That'll get you through the tough times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that these things are in your word for examples, to encourage us, to inspire us, to challenge us, to help us, to make us be more determined 
and to be fully persuaded in our own hearts. And so we thank you, Lord, that we're here tonight, not because it's convenient, but because we're committed. Because we have chosen to do this. We've chosen to be here, to worship you, to listen to your word. And Lord, we're choosing this week to be your servants, all of us, and to be fully committed to you, whatever that takes. So Lord, give us that grace that we need, that strength that we need, that courage that we need to be the men and women of God that we ought to be. And we'll give you the thanks and we'll give you all the honor and we'll give you all of the glory. So Lord, as we walk into a new working week, we pray, Lord, that that presence of yours will be upon us, will be around us, that others may sense Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you, Lord, that we are your representatives tonight. We are your ambassadors. And wherever we go, we take the fragrance of Christ with us. And we pray as we walk into company this week, whatever company we walk into, that our lives will be an influence, a positive influence for good and for Christ and for his kingdom. So we give you thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.